morning. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we hold your word in, in honor. We desire to hear from you today through your word. And I pray, Father, that as we do, we would seek to apply it in our lives for your glory, that we might be more effective as your servants in the places that you call us to this week. So be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember where you were when the Twin Towers fell? September 11, 2001. Now, some of you weren't around yet, but for those of us who were, I think we probably all remember right where we were when we got the news. We remember well those times that bad news comes to us. I remember where I was when I got the word that President Kennedy was shot. Makes me a part of ancient history, I suppose. Uh, I remember where I was when I got the news that my dad had a stroke. You probably remember where you were when you got a piece of really hard news. Bad news comes to all of us. And that's why I entitled this message, When Bad News Comes, Not If Bad News Comes. Because it does come to all of us, and when it does, it hits us in the gut, and it leaves us wondering what to do. Bad news came to Nehemiah along about December of the year 445 B.C. A brother named Hanani, who is mentioned again in chapter 7, verse 2, came to him in the capital city of Babylon, the city of Susa, with news that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down and its gates had been burned. That's where the book of Nehemiah opens, with some really bad news. So let me ask you, when did this destruction of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem take place? We think about the destruction of Jerusalem uh, when we think about 586 B.C., when, Nehemiah, or when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. But that was around 140 years before Nehemiah. That was history. This is news. This news devastates Nehemiah. Let's take a look back at something that we talked about just a few weeks ago. Ezra chapter 4 if you'd flip back there in your Bibles, if you're open to Nehemiah 1 already, it's just a few pages back. In the Bibles that we provide here, I believe it's page 391. But take a look at Ezra chapter 4. In verse 5, it, it speaks about something that was happening all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so something is going on in the time of Darius. If you look ahead to verse 24 of that same chapter, it says this, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So he's picking up in 24 where he left off in verse five. So what about the verses in between? Those verses in between, Ezra is using to refer to something else something that actually happened more recently from Ezra's perspective, something that sets the stage for the book of Nehemiah. 
Let's take a look at, at the chronology. This is a, this is a chart that, that we looked at a, a few weeks ago when we were going through uh, Ezra. And uh, I, I want us to kind of get the, the picture of what's going on here. The left side of the chart shows the uh, Persian kings, and there are three of them that stand out in particular that factor into this passage. And so I've bolded them, Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes. And so uh, these three factor in. Cyrus was the one who sent the Jews back into the land, sent Zerubbabel back to help build the temple. Darius was the one under whose reign uh, the temple was actually built. And Artaxerxes is the one who was king when Nehemiah got permission to go back and rebuild the walls. There are two more Persian kings on the left side of the chart who don't factor in. Cambyses, who only reigned for eight years and, and doesn't have a role in the storyline, and Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes, who really uh, didn't do anything uh, regarding Israel. So three Persian kings. Now on the right side, three key Israelite figures stand out, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. You'll recall Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra rebuilt the community, and Nehemiah uh, rebuilt the walls. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, ministered during the time of Zerubbabel when the temple work was halted, and they got the people motivated to restart the work on the temple. So overall, the picture is this. Zerubbabel gets sent back to Jerusalem under the reign of Cyrus in uh, the year 538. BC. Begins work on the temple two years later, according to Ezra 3.8. So that would be 5.36 when the temple foundation was laid. People celebrated. Opposition stepped up and got the work stopped for 16 years. Until the second year of Darius, which would be 5.20 BC. The temple built by Zerubbabel was then completed around 515 during the reign of Darius. The opposition uh, to the Jews doing these things in Jerusalem takes the form of three letters. And those three letters are the subject of those verses in Ezra 4 between verses 5 and verse 26. Three letters mentioned there. And Ezra is careful to mark dates for these letters, and he does it by designating who was in power at the time the letters were written. We do the same things, the same thing with, with presidential administrations, right? This happened during the Eisenhower administration, that sort of thing. Ezra is very careful to mark the times by who is in charge. Letter number one, we see in verse six, of Ezra chapter 4, and letter number 1 was written around 485 during the reign of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. Okay. Letter number 2 was written during Artaxerxes' reign around 465. We find it in verse 7 of Ezra 4, and it was written by a few guys named Bishlam, Midradath, and Tabil. Letter 3 was also written during Artaxerxes' reign around 446, B.C., and that was written by a couple of guys named Rehum and Shimshai, and that's recorded in Ezra 4, 8 through 16. It is this third letter 
that got really significant results. Artaxerxes gets the letter, has a search conducted of the archives of his kingdom and the kingdom that he conquered, the Babylonian kingdom, to find out what the deal is with Jerusalem. And he finds that Jerusalem has been trouble for years to everybody who has tried to govern that region. So Jerusalem, he sees as a seedbed of trouble, and he gives the order to halt the work on the rebuilding of the temple, verse 21 of Ezra 4. But the local opposition gets this permission from Artaxerxes and goes way beyond stopping the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And it goes on to tear down the walls around Jerusalem and burn the gates. And that is the news that Nehemiah gets as he starts his book. Now that's a lot of history, but it's important to set the stage for that because of who the king of Persia is when Nehemiah gets the word that the city's been destroyed, that the walls have been knocked down and the gates have been burned. Who's the king at that point when Nehemiah gets the word? It's Artaxerxes. It's the same man who has issued the order to stop the work, the man who has allowed the walls to be knocked down and allowed the gates to be destroyed. So let me ask you this. Do you think it would be easy or hard to get Artaxerxes to reverse his position on this? It'd be incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. So the news that Nehemiah gets is that the city he loves has been sacked and the man who authorized it is the, the most powerful man on earth. And that's really bad news. That's the news that opens the book of Nehemiah. What do you do with that? What's Nehemiah to do with that news? What do we do when we get really bad news? Let me suggest a couple things that come from today's text. And the first is this. When bad news comes to you, the first thing you need to do is to process it. Process it. When you get the news that someone very near to you has died, when you get the diagnosis from your doctor that you've got metastatic cancer, when you get the news that your home and your business have been destroyed by a hurricane, what do you need to do? You need be, to begin with processing that news. You don't just shake it off. It hits you hard. You need to absorb the impact of it. And that's what we see Nehemiah do in verse 4. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah take some time to process this bad news that he's received. It may be different for each of us as we respond to bad news, but I think that what Nehemiah did would be a good guide for us when we are processing bad news. Take a look at the elements of what Nehemiah did. First thing he did was he sat down. 
You ever get the kind of news that makes you sit down? Have you ever had somebody open some news to you by saying, you'd better sit down before I tell you what I need to tell you? Those are words you don't want to hear. Those are words that when you hear them, you realize you'd better sit down or you might fall down. Nehemiah sits down and he weeps, it says. Real men don't do that. Real men don't weep, right? Excuse me. Nehemiah is no wimp. All you have to do is look at chapter 13 of his book to realize this is a man of action. In chapter 13, we read that Nehemiah discovers that this troublemaker named Tobiah has been given a large room in the temple to live in. And Nehemiah throws all of Tobiah's stuff out of the temple and forbids him to enter. That's a man of action. Chapter 13 of Nehemiah also shows that Nehemiah is uh, the man who confronts the nobles about Sabbath violations and orders the gates to be shut, the gates of Jerusalem to be shut for the whole Sabbath so people can't come and go. And he gets that done because he's a man of action. He's the same man who warns the merchants who've been trying to sell stuff on the Sabbath to quit hanging around the gates And he tells them that if they don't quit hanging around the gates, he's going to lay hands on them himself. (laughs) And he gets them to quit hanging around the gates. He's the same man who found out that this intermarriage issue that Ezra had dealt with is happening again. And verse 25 of chapter 13 tells us he confronts the offenders, curses them, beats some of them, and pulls out their hair. This is a man of action. This is no wimp. But he's broken by the disastrous news he gets about his city, and he sits down and cries. He says he mourned for days. What's that about? When the Jews were in mourning, they would wear sackcloth, burlap, uncomfortable. And they'd put ashes on their heads as a sign of mourning. And, and the impact of their loss would be the thing that they would just absorb and think about. And the shock of the loss is so great, and they, they would feel it so intensely. We do, too, that, that we feel physically ill, that, that our interest in food is just diminished. We're deeply troubled. We can't eat. We can't think clearly. We're discouraged. We're depressed. Our loss is the only thing we can think of. That's what Nehemiah was going through. And and his mourning showed itself in fasting and prayer. John Piper wrote an excellent book on fasting called Hunger for God. Talks about why we fast. We don't fast because we're trying to manipulate God into doing something we want him to do. We fast because our hunger for God becomes in that moment more important to us than our hunger for food. And so that's what we focus on. Prayer with fasting used to be a common practice among Christians. It's not so much anymore. But it's a good spiritual discipline to incorporate into our lives. And in times when bad news comes to us, it's a really appropriate thing for us to do. It focuses us on God but we probably won't think about doing it then unless 
we're in the practice of doing it now. Sitting down, weeping, mourning, fasting, praying, all of those things can help us to process bad news when it comes our way. And I use the word process on purpose, not because I'm trying to psychologize uh, the text, but I use it on purpose because process is both a verb and a noun. I've been using it as, as a verb, process your grief, but I want to use it as a noun now. Think about the process God brought him through in those days of mourning and weeping and fasting and praying. Here's the point. The process that God brought him through in those days was purposeful. The process is purposeful when we go through it as well. And at the end of it, you should be in a different place than you were when you started. Think about Nehemiah. Before, he was devastated. After, he is confident. It's an amazing transformation, and it makes me wonder how much we rob ourselves of by not processing our grief, by not allowing ourselves to work through it, to go through this process. When we try instead to just ignore it, or we try to medicate it, or we try to just soldier on despite it. I think Nehemiah shows us that God is there in our grief. And that he wants us to move through our grief to a place on the other side of it. That by his grace gives us a deeper and richer fellowship with him than we had before we started. Job chapter 42 verse 5 comes at the point in Job's book where he's gone through his whole process. All of the trials and all of those things that happened to him, and he has laid his complaint before God, and God has spoken, and he sums up his experience this way. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, my experience of God is now like sight compared to what it was before that was like just hearing That's what the process does. It deepens us. It deepens us in our relationship with God. So when bad news comes, don't sidestep the process. God will minister to you in powerful ways as you go through it. And he'll bring you out on the other side in a different place. And then once you've processed it, you can resolve it. And that's the subject of Ezra's Nehemiah's prayer in verses 5 through 11. Resolve it. How does the prayer of verses 5 through 11 relate to the mention of his praying in verse 4? We see a prayer in verses 5 through 11, but we see him talking about praying before that in verse 4. He says he prayed for days before he gets to this prayer of verses 5 through 11. 
The prayer in 5 through 11 looks like the final product of all of the struggling in prayer that he had been doing for all those days in verse 4. Days of prayer and fasting allowed Nehemiah to put it all together in the prayer we see in verses 5 through 11. Makes me think of a man named Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, a man that Paul said was struggling in prayer for them. The NIV says he wrestles in prayer for you. And that sort of struggling in prayer, that sort of wrestling in prayer produces something. And the prayer of verses 5 through 11 shows that Nehemiah had wrestled with some really important things because those things show up in his prayer. And the first thing that shows up in his prayer is God's character. Verse 5, look at it. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God's character shows up in Nehemiah's prayer. Notice what he calls him. He begins with the word Lord. And did you notice in your text, it's all written in capitals. Whenever you see the word Lord written in all capitals, what lies behind that is the Hebrew word for God, the sacred name of God that they wouldn't utter because our lips are too impure to utter his holy name. And so those words, those letters are brought over into our English with the letters Y-H-W-H or according to the translator J-H-V-H. What do we get from those? Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jews would never say that name. Our lips are not pure enough to say that name. And they would substitute the word Adonai. And Adonai means Lord. And so uh, when, when the Masoretes added vowels to the Hebrew text around 600 B.C., they put in the vowels for Adonai every time the word Yahweh came up. And so the Jews would not pronounce the sacred name of God. And that carries over into our English with the word Lord, which is what Adonai means. But it's all in capitals to show us what the word behind it is. It's the covenant name of God. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses. It's the great I am. It speaks of the relationship between God and his people. That's how Nehemiah opens his prayer. He calls the Lord God of heaven. God of heaven. It is it is a title that is used extensively during the period of the exile in Babylon. And it's used by Jews and by Persians alike. It's, it's the name Cyrus used uh, of God when he spoke of him in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. It speaks of God's majesty, his power, his supremacy, his sovereignty, the God of heaven. And then it goes on to say that he is the great and awesome God. Great is, uh, is a wonderful Hebrew word, gadol. It means huge. He is huge, powerful, and awesome. Uh, at the root of that word lies the Hebrew word for fear. He is so great that he is to be feared. Uh, awesome. The King James Version uses the word terrible. He is great and terrible. 
great and awesome. And he's not only great. The prayer here in verse 5 tells us that he's also good. He keeps covenant. He is the covenant-making God who is good for his word. He's true to his word. He keeps his covenant and steadfast love to his people. And that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. You've probably heard hesed before. It's the Hebrew equivalent of grace. Grace. What do all of those things tell us from Nehemiah's prayer that that Nehemiah understands about God? It, It tells us that Nehemiah understands God is great and he is also good. He is able, and he is also willing. There's an account in Matthew chapter 8, right after the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus comes down from the Mount, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, You can make me clean. You see what he's saying? Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. I know you are able. My question is, are you willing? And it tells us this. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be clean. I am willing. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He's willing and he is able. I think about what Jesus did with that leper. Didn't have to touch him. He did a lot of healings without having to touch anybody. When he touched him, he he incurred the uncleanness of that man's disease in himself. It's what he did for us at the cross when he took upon himself our sin and he became the cursed one hanging on a tree because he took the curse for us. He is able because he is great. He is willing because he is good. And if he weren't great, we wouldn't need to bother approaching him because he wouldn't be able to do anything for us if he weren't great. And if he weren't good, we wouldn't dare approach him. But he is both great and good. Nehemiah opens his prayer by focusing on God's character. And then the second thing that shows up in Nehemiah's prayer is our sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses." Did you notice that Nehemiah, like Ezra, includes himself 
in confessing the sin of his people. In verse 6, he speaks of the sins of the people of Israel, which we, not they, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house, we have acted very corruptly. The sin problem is not out there somewhere. It's not their problem, it's our problem. We stand guilty and our only hope is the grace of God. We come to God empty-handed. We have no merit of our own. The hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we get to thinking that we deserve God's favor. We're not as bad as the people around us. We need to be reminded that God operates by grace and we have no merit of our own. We don't deserve his grace and we can't earn his grace, but we can walk in an awareness of God's grace. Third thing that shows up in Ezra's prayer is the promises of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, literally the uttermost parts of the sky, wherever there is sky, people I've been scattered there. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He recalls the promises of God. Nehemiah recognizes that God told Moses that if his people were unfaithful, he said he'd scatter them. And they were. And he did. But he also told them that if they'd return to him, he said he'd gather them back and return them to the land. And he did that too. God is faithful to his promises. So now they're back in the land and the walls have been broken down around the city and the gates have been burned and his people's existence is in question. It didn't make sense to him. He wondered what God was doing and he wondered what his own part in it needs to be. What does he need to do? I am sure that was at the heart of what he'd been wrestling with in prayer all those days. What is this all about? And that leads us to the final thing in Nehemiah's prayer and that is our response. Action, verse 11. Oh Lord, he says, this is the resolution of the whole thing. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant himself, Nehemiah, and to the prayer of your servants, my kinsmen, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah had come to the conclusion that God wanted him to do something. And he had wrestled in prayer to the point where he had become convinced of what it was God wanted him to do. The last line of Nehemiah's prayer reveals it when he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He had become convinced that he needed to make an appeal to King Artaxerxes. 
the man who had ordered the shutdown of the work on the city of Jerusalem, the man who allowed the walls to be destroyed and the gates to be burned, the man who had left the city of Jerusalem defenseless. Nehemiah asks God for success as he talks to King Artaxerxes. Grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah knows that Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on earth in that day. And that Nehemiah will need mercy from Artaxerxes if he is going to go on living. But he also knows that Artaxerxes is just a man. He says, Give me mercy in the sight of this man, Artaxerxes. God is the one who's ultimately in control. Artaxerxes, after all, is just a man. The last sentence of chapter 1 gives us a hint of what is to come. As Nehemiah closes out this chapter, he gives a detail that comes as a surprise to the reader. Up to this point, we really, as, as we read this book afresh, we, we really have no idea of who it is who's receiving this bad news, who it is that's telling his story here. But now he tells us. And what he tells us sets the stage for the rest of the book. He is the cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer to the king. It's a really interesting role. This would be the guy who selects and samples the wine that is given to the king to drink to make sure that that wine has not been poisoned. If Nehemiah would drink some of the wine brought to the king and if he didn't fall over dead, the king would feel safe to drink it himself. It's kind of dangerous work, cupbearer but it would be a highly trusted position. He would be hand-selected. He would be highly trusted. In one country in the ancient Near East, that man was also the prime minister, the cupbearer, prime minister. It was a position of great status. It was a position of considerable comfort, provided you didn't fall over dead. You'd be living in a palace, eating at a king's table. It was a great honor, especially for a foreigner like Nehemiah. And it was a position of great influence, being right at the king's elbow. In other words, Nehemiah was in a key position to do something for the city of Jerusalem. He may be the only person who could. But as we learn from the story of Esther, you take your life into your hands if you upset an ancient Near Eastern monarch. And the man who allowed the damage to be done to Jerusalem is the very man Nehemiah needs to ask permission to go rebuild. It's a huge task, but that's a topic for another sermon. Come back next Sunday. We'll go there. But for now, let me just ask you this. When did God provide the solution to Nehemiah's request in his prayer, verses 5 through 11? When did he make Nehemiah cupbearer to King Artaxerxes? 
We don't have specifics, but it would have been before this damage was done to the city of Jerusalem. Before there was a problem, God had put the solution in place. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. That verse points to a day yet to come when history is consummated, but it shows the heart of God for his people. It shows that God has solutions in place before we know we need them. God doesn't just react to things we present to him. He has a plan for the whole process. And the process we experience is intended for his glory and our good. He hasn't fallen asleep at the switch when bad things happen to us. He's still in control. He has purpose in all of it. And for those who will process it and resolve it, there is growth and there is depth and there is maturity in Christ. When bad news comes to us, we need to realize that God has given us what we need in order to process it and resolve it. So when bad news comes to you, process it. See the bad news as it is. Let it sink in. Take it in. Wrestle in prayer. Recognize that God is at work in the midst of the situation. And seek to understand and come out of the process in a different place than you were when you went into it. And then resolve it. Recognize the character of God as you come to him in your grief. See your situation in the context of God's covenant love. Recognize that you come empty-handed to him, but never uninvited. Trust in his promises. Make yourself available to be used of him to make a difference for the glory of his name. You'll find some questions for further thought in the program. I hope you'll make use of them this week, maybe around your dinner table, maybe in your small group. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who has purpose for all of the difficulties we experience in our lives. I thank you, Father, that when we will allow ourselves to see ourselves in this process, that we can come out the other side of dealing with those things in a different and better place, better equipped to serve you, better equipped to give glory to you. So help us to do that, Father, with the difficulties that come our way. Help us to recognize that you're still in control. You're still on the throne. Your hand has not slipped. You are still carrying us and accomplishing purposes for us and through us, even in the midst of the difficulty. Help us then, Lord, to grow in our ability to trust you and give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.